Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you thinking about starting up that band, label, or distro? Or maybe you already have one and you need some merch. Anchorfish Printing has been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I can speak from personal experience. When Touche Amore started, Michael at Anchorfish was our guy for shirts, hoodies, patches, back patches, anything uh, that you know you could put ink on material for, he can take care of. Check out their uh, Instagram over at anchorfish underscore printing right now and mention the first ever podcast and receive 10% off your order. Hit them up for shirts, hats, stickers, anything you can really think of and be on your way. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 84, and I am so excited to announce that my guest is Jim Cummings. I am a huge Jim Cummings fan. He's an actor, he's a director, he's a writer, he's a producer. He really shows that if you put in enough work, you can make your own stuff on your own terms. And it's really, really inspiring. He's made a few movies, and uh, they're all incredible. Uh, The first one people got to really know was a movie called Thunder Road. Then he did a movie called The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is a great comedy horror film. That was my introduction to him. And he has a newest movie, which came out last year, called The Beta Test, which is a really fun comedy thriller Um, this was such an exciting conversation. I want to give a big shout out to a previous guest of the podcast, Thomas Mann, who, uh, did the film Halloween kills with Jim. They both played the officers in the flashback scenes. I, uh, when we, when I finished talking to Thomas, I was like, Hey, is there any way you think that Jim would talk to me? And he set it up and he made it work. And, uh, I'm so honored and I'm so thrilled, but, uh, I want to remind everybody that, If you want a bonus episode with Jim, you can get one and it is available right now on the Patreon. Hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where right now there's that bonus episode where Jim answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. And it's a good one. There's uh, some really good answers in there. Um, Also, I want to give a shout out to my sponsor, Death Wish Inc., For 20 years, Deathwish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with their recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greet Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Deathwish music and merch in their store using the link deathwishinc.com slash thefirstever which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for only items included. Again, that is 10% off all Deathwish releases and merch when you visit deathwishinc.com slash the first ever. You should uh, pre-order the second pressing of the Converge Blood Moon record because it is great and you don't want to have that missing from your goddamn record collection. 
And hey, you didn't think you'd get through a whole intro here if I didn't bring up that I'm still on tour, right? I'm currently in Calgary. We have the day off and this tour is going to be over so soon. It's crazy. Uh, This is coming out on Wednesday, which means tonight we are in Edmonton at the Starlight Room and it is my birthday tonight. Today is my birthday. So uh, hopefully tonight will be fun. And, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I very rarely ever have birthdays on tour. And oddly enough, the last time I think I did was also in Edmonton. I don't know what the chances of that are, but it's crazy. Um, Friday on the April 8th, uh, we're going to be at the Rickshaw Theater in Vancouver. Then on the 9th at the Crocodile in Seattle. Then on the 10th at uh, the Star Theater in Portland. And the tour ends at the Atrium at the Catalyst in Santa Cruz on April 12th. We are, of course, on tour with Vane, Military Gun, and Scowl. I hope to see you there. Thank you so much. That's enough from me. Here is my conversation with Jim Cummings. Hey, Jim, how's it going? How are you? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm excited. I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am about this. And I appreciate you uh, helping me reschedule with this because I think last night I told you I played some shows in my show and my voice was like completely shot. So I was so thankful you were nice <laughs> enough to say we can reschedule. Oh, I was happy to. How did the shows go? Uh, they were there. It was uh, it was fun. Um, so I'm also I'm also like racking up episodes because my the band I play and we leave for tour on the third. And so again, I'm happy that you were able to make this happen. But like that was an unexpected. Let's play a couple shows to sort of like knock some dust off. And uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't. Uh, it's like a punk band, so I did not warm up whatsoever. And there it was. That's great. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited and, uh, shout out to, to Thomas for setting this up. Um, he's someone I've known for a bit, so that was super cool. Seeing you both in the the Halloween movie got me so psyched. I was like, holy shit, that's awesome. It was great. I was a fan of his from all of his earlier movies. And then, uh, David Gordon Green introduced us at a taco place. He was like, let's just go have tacos and hang out. And uh, we were staying right across the hall from each other in Wilmington, and it was very much like a Samwise Gamgee Frodo relationship, where I was always like helping him out and like kind of like building that camaraderie very quickly, so we would seem like friends on screen. And then by accident, we became good friends. Um, yeah, he's he's a really lovely guy. I like that guy a lot. Yeah, he's he's so so sweet. Um, I was actually curious. I mean, this is like you know, this would be jumping ahead type stuff, but. Um, was your relationship with David Gordon Green started because maybe he had seen your work and was like, oh, this seems like a fun guy to have in the film? Yeah, um, I feel like I'm bragging, but David had been a pen pal for a minute. Um, I had reached out to him when I was a child. I mean, like I, so I saw All the Real Girls when it came out on DVD. Um, I was like a big blockbuster kid and I would like ride my bike and pick up movies. And All the Real Girls is one of the movies that got me into making movies because it was another Southern dude making films. And I was like, Oh, I could do this. Like I couldn't, I don't think I could do the Spielberg or the David Fincher thing, but like I could definitely do, do this kind of thing. Um, and so he was a huge inspiration on me growing up. And then when I started making movies professionally, I reached out to him. I forgot how I got in touch with him initially. Um, but we became like pen pals by email. And then I made the Thunder Road short. And I think that was the first time I got in touch with him again after a few years and he was like, oh, Danny, Danny McBride had just like shown this to me. And it's like hilarious. I didn't know that that was you. And then I was just asking for advice on like the Thunder Road feature edit. And so we had been like 
communicative for almost a decade on accident. And then he saw Thunder Road again because it was on an airplane um, and he was traveling for like prep for Halloween Kills. And uh, he called me out of the blue and was like, uh, hey, dude, yeah, come on. Like, we're tr- I got this part that I want you to play. Like, come on down to Wilmington. And I was like, don't I have to audition? And he was like, no, man, come on down. It'll be a lot of fun. Like, I was like, oh, hang out. And, uh, <laughs> and so I got cast in that movie um, by freak accident just because you know, David had seen my work and knew that I could probably be funny and tragic in this moment that he needed. And it was great. It was such a dream. Did you chuckle at all? I have to ask, did you chuckle at all knowing that you would be playing a police officer? Um, I, I, so he didn't send me the script just then. He was like, Hey, I need you to do this part. It's funny. And I was like, okay. And then I read the script and it was like officer McCabe. And I was like, all right, great. This is awesome. (laughs) You, you've, you've been typecast as uh, as that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess I've done it to myself, kind of, for two movies at least. Um, yeah. So, um, are you in? Are you are you a West Coast guy? Or are you East Coast guy? Or are you still in the yeah, South? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles these days. I'm like not far from the Hollywood sign, ironically. Even though our our movie, our latest movie, makes fun of it a whole lot, um, we are in Hollywood. Yeah, right into the fire. Yeah, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm in Glendale, so yeah, we're not. We're okay, not cool. Too we're far neighbors. I'm at the top of Barn Boulevard. I'm not too far. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, does uh, when did because you, you you grew up in New Orleans, but um, I, is it true you went to Emerson? So you were in Boston. I did. I did. I, I, yeah, in Boston. Yeah, I was there for four years. Was that your first time out of like leaving Louisiana to live somewhere else? Um, I had done, I had done a class at New York Film Academy in LA, uh, on the Universal Backlot for like a month. And then I had done a program at USC for music videos. So I had done like maybe like two or three months away. And that was like a bit like college where it was like, they were both on kind of college campuses and um, USC was the was the second one, and uh, and so when I moved to Boston, it was relatively familiar just because I had done those kind of like sleepaway camp things. Okay, so how was your how was your first time being in Los Angeles? Was it overwhelming? Was it exciting? What do you remember? I remember so like we had befriended a guy who was a taxi driver named Vic. Um, I wonder if I still have his number, but I was probably thirteen or fourteen. And he would pick up our friend group at any hour of the night. He was such a chill dude. And we would go to like Universal City Walk and kind of like wander around and see a movie. And it felt like the first real adult kind of hangouts that I was able to do. And um, it was a bit overwhelming. I remember going to like Hollywood and and Highland or Hollywood and Vine and stuff and kind of like wandering around and seeing all of Hollywood. Um, But it's as a child so different like i grew up in in new orleans there's almost no film industry there's almost no film community down there in 2009 2005 when i left um and so it was it was a bit of culture shock but um but no i'm still i still feel like i'm not really used to it i still feel like i'll walk down the street and see a celebrity and go oh that's that i'm so used to seeing that person in a rectangle and then that's actually them right in front of me um i still have a bit of shell shock sure i was even last night i was even thinking i was like how many known directors have really come out of louisiana and like tyler perry is someone that is that is known for coming out of out of like the new orleans scene but is there anyone else that comes to mind that maybe i'm unaware of um the duplass brothers are actually born in my neighborhood they were so we're both from metairie which is like right across the canal from uh new orleans parish um and so they're pretty big who else uh 
um, what's his face? The Court 13 gang who made Beast of the Southern Wild, um, Ben Zeitland is from New Orleans. Um, there's a couple of good folks like uh, Michael Gottwald, who's the producer for Court 13 and a bunch of awesome indie films is is from NOLA. Um, there's like a few really good actors who are from there. Dave Davis is from there. There's like a small group of kids that went to this arts high school called NOCA, um, uh, which is like a school for creative arts. And uh, and so there is a bit of a community in film, but really, no. Anytime there's like a big New Orleans production, it's Fincher coming in to do Benjamin Button or something. Right. Did you? Oh, is that where they filmed that? I don't think I realized that. Yeah. Did you feel like there was like when growing up there, like when you were starting to get interested in doing this stuff, did was did you have any sort of community around you that that you were like influenced by? Or was it like, oh, I, sh- I probably need to move out of here? without disrespect to the home so yeah no so so i went to noca for like for i was supposed to do a semester there and then i had a a fight a bit with my film teacher because uh she was showing off um videos of i forget the guy's name he's a he's like a surrealist artist who uses his dogs i forget the guy's name but we were watching these videos and it was like this is pre-youtube but I feel like I already seen these videos on the internet before. And I was like, this isn't really an education for me. I feel like I'm not really learning anything. And um, I think I was about 13 and she called me out into the hallway and was like, Hey, what I, what I select in my, um, you know, in my courses is my choice. And I, I just felt like, Oh, I can't, I, this is so uncomfortable. I can't be here anymore. And so much of my early experiences in film were like that. It was, it, it was never me having a great time with the community in film it was always me leaving it going, I have to be better than all of this. And like, you know, creating this like pettiness in my mind that then became ambition to do something bigger when I grew up. And whenever I speak to my heroes, so much of their fledgling experiences in film or comedy were awkward as hell. And so that was the thing that got them to say, oh, I'm going to burn this place to the ground with the work that I do, you know? Um, right. And so, so I feel like, although it wasn't a conventional way, as you'd imagine it, to have a career in any any kind of artwork, um, it did set me up to to do what I'm doing right now. Sure. Um, side question that I noticed when I was just, you know, doing minimal research, I saw you were born on Halloween. Did that ruin Halloween for you or did it, uh, how did that play out for you growing up? It's still my favorite holiday. Uh, and for a long time, I thought people were dressing up for me for longer than I like to admit. My mom kind of kept that a a good secret. Um, no, I love it. And I've always wanted to do a Halloween film. I've always wanted to do something. And so when David called and I told him Halloween was my birthday, he was like, get the fuck out of here. It's like, he, nobody believed me on set. I had to get my license, my driver's license out to be like, look, October 31st. Ah, that's awesome. That's super, super cool. Um, so the show is all about first experiences and things like that. So, um, I was curious when you were a kid, what the first, uh, like the first time you connected with film in a way that you were like you know, like moved by it or something, you know, like something where it really drew you into where you're like, Oh my God, like, this is so amazing. This is so special. So there was a blockbuster about a mile, maybe two miles, maybe two miles from my house. And so I was able to ride my bike there. And I think they let you rent 10 DVDs at a time for like 48 hours. And so I would rent as many as my handlebars would allow 
and then watch them. And I would like, they always had the spines out. So I could like walk down an aisle and see Criterion Collection, like logos on the side of it. And then that became my film education. I was a bit of a like collector of, of uh, Criterion movies. Um, but really, I think like the coolness factor was the thing that attracted me to movies where like, Fight Club had that two disc box set, the kind of paper wrapped um, bomb looking uh, box set. And I remember, you know, kind of like just devouring that and kind of going through just not just the design of the box, but also like all the supplementary materials. And like it just felt very subversive as a 14 year old. And I was like, all right, cool. This will be this will be this will be neat. And then, I, you know, I watched it. I've probably watched it a 100 times, maybe. And then the same thing goes for the Royal Tenenbaums, where like they were such unique styles of movies that were doing stuff that I wasn't seeing on television of like fusing genres and still having this like overarching um, uh, patina that was separate from each other. And and both the movies came out at similar times, like you know, the matrix obviously came out the, around the same time. Like that was hugely formative to my youth of watching that VHS tape a thousand times, but it was, it was mainly subversive stuff. It was stuff that was like making it into the newspapers as this is a dangerous movie to watch. Um, and so I felt really cool, although I didn't have many cool experiences in real life. I was able to watch these movies that kind of became a surrogate for those experiences. And like, I don't know. I, I felt like a, such a little revolutionary <laughs> watching these movies back in the day and nothing's changed. I mean, it, the last movie that we made is like a love letter to David Fincher's movies and subversive drama and thrillers. And um, yeah, I feel like those were the big, the big ones for me, Matrix and Fight Club and Royal Tenenbaums. That makes sense too. Uh, especially for your age. I'm a couple, I'm a couple years older than you, but I, I mean, I remember that this- so so much like when those movies were coming out it was like perfect for if you're a teenager you're just like yeah. holy shit like um it also you know if you if you're attracted to film like that i'm sure it made you want to find out what their influences were and maybe try to watch some of that stuff was that was that like a motivation for you yeah sure i mean really i had already seen so many movies at that point i was watching like one or two movies a day and it was you know a lot of fucking kurosawa it was like all of the greats so that i had a better understanding of when someone was you know, like the, the fincher on fincher book um the interviews of his like I, when that came out i had already kind of seen all of his big inspiring films or scorsese or whatever um so, so really, I, I felt like, in theory, I was a contemporary of that time period and not necessarily of, you know, the, the millennial age. Um, and so it, it's funny, the, the graduating class that I graduated with was in 2009 from Emerson. And at that point, we had learned to make movies on 16 millimeter. And then, but around the time of like the Canon DSLR movement, the digital revolution, and and then all of these kids in the pre in the next generations were just trying to make movies that looked cool instead of were you know actually being good movies. So I feel like I came out at exactly the right time to be inspired by these people who were making incredibly well crafted movies and not trying to impress people on the internet. Um, and then like there's a bit of a cliff that that came after our graduating class towards like drone videography and shallow depth of field super saturated let's try and make a cool music video feel interesting interesting yeah 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 um when you were 
it's funny you're talking about like uh, movies that are subversive subversive and things like that <clears throat> did you ever have a period in your life where you're like i want to watch the most depraved stuff like did you go oh, through yeah. that teenage <laughs> era oh yeah Oh yeah. yeah, and also like at that time, Agrish was like a big website. Like just a, a, at that oh, age, in order yeah. to be a tough guy, like in that age, you had to watch super fucked up stuff. And like that, yeah. that was something that I went down. I mean, my I remember my mom like was like saw the hit internet history and was like, my, my son is a serial killer. My son is going to be a serial killer. I'm sure. Um, but really, no. that was like such a, a a subversive type of media. It was like what we would watch Jackass all the time. Like it was something that you weren't supposed to do. Um, that like you know the parents hated, but the kids loved. You know, I was a huge fan of Eminem at the time. Like it was a very unique time period where subversion was making it into the mainstream. And the more wild you could be, and the more accessible that you could be to the general public, the better. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was. Uh, it was a weird time. I, I, I do feel like even now, the other day I, I tweeted being like, you know, what are the most <laughs> what are the most dangerous and fucked up movies you've ever seen? And so many people were like, oh, see a Serbian film, like see all of the, these movies. So right. I add them to my letterbox just to be like, all right, every once in a while I should watch something that that resets my palate and my metronome of, oh, you can go that far. It's OK to do something really insane, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh definitely they, the, it's like the movies that if you describe to somebody or like you tell or you bring up in a conversation there's always going to be someone who's like oh i i don't think i could watch that i don't think i could watch that yeah those are i think it's also hands. it's also a bit of a the bed of nails theory psychologically where it's like nowadays everything is so tame and sanitized in the cinema is like it, it's very rare to see any kind of action like in dune i saw dune um at its french premiere at the deauville film festival and uh, probably my favorite theater in the world. It's all Atmos sound, enormous screen. It's the best kind of projection. Um, and there's this, no spoilers, there's a, there's a pretty, supposed to be a graphic murder in this in this movie. And um, and they cut away from it. It's like a guy slitting somebody's throat and they have to cut away to the other character and they don't show the violence. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's because it has to be PG-13. They can't, they can't do that because they're trying to make movies for 14-year-olds. Um, right. and, and that's how you get PG-13. So I, I don't know. I feel like now... Uh, it's it's very difficult to see something shocking on the screen, but when Borat does it, or when Johnny Knoxville does it, it becomes this huge universal success. Um, I think I think because most people don't want to make movies for perverts like us anymore; they want to make them for you know groups of kids that go out to the cinema. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point, and it's also fascinating too because we're also at an era where Netflix just put out the Texas Chainsaw Massacre like sequel so it's like but that's not going on the big screen that's like straight to streaming and and maybe you know uh less risk for them to expect that to be on the screen have you seen it yet i did (laughs) (laughs) i haven't seen it yet so i can't judge it but i i purposely was like oh i don't want to see this the the stills that they released everybody looks so clean it looks like a gap commercial and not and not you know, and so I, I feel like that kind of sanitization of and nothing against them, like they know sure. the public more than I, really what I'm doing now is judging the public for what they want to see, because Netflix has right. all the data they know they and they use it well. They know what the public is looking for. So I don't mean to do that. Um, but it, it is that it's not it doesn't look like the kind of movie that I want to see, if that makes sense. The, yeah. And, you know, I think the there's a lot, you know, I think the core fans have a ton of problems with it but um i th- i think it's it's 
I think it, what you're describing is exactly like it lacks the grit that everybody loves about the original, where it feels like you're watching something that is genuinely happening because it's on the 16 millimeter. It's grainy. It's, it's fucked up looking. It's ugly as hell. Like, whereas this is like shot with nice cameras and yeah, you know, it is what it is. Um, I was curious what the first time you felt the power of a script was if, you know, like the, um, it could be something you just maybe even mentioned, but you know, the first time where you really noticed the writing in it where you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it. I'm, I'm a terrible screenwriter and I never like the written word is never something that I focus on very much. It's always the storytelling um, cinematically and auditorially. Um, Interesting. So it was never anything that I read. Um, I really liked when, um, uh, when Royal Tenenbaum saves Buckley, uh, and, um, or saves the kids and then, um, you know, is, is puts his arm around his son and he says, it's been a, it's been a hard year. And he goes, I know. And then, um, he's the only one of the kids who's there when he dies in the ambulance. I really thought that that was very poignant of like, um, the rest of the movie, the guy can be a complete asshole, but to the kid who hates him the most, he's able to fix that relationship. And that was always the big tearjerker for me. Um, That was kind of the first time where I was like, oh, characters can be these plot devices to make the audience feel something extremely emotional. Um, I remember noticing that and being like, and feeling it biologically in my heart and being like, oh yeah, that's, that's a beautiful way to tell that story. Um, I don't know, but that's a good question. I, I really hate screenplay format. I really hate the idea that screenplays are this, um, you know, ogled profession or, or item. Um, I, I've never found them to be very helpful for me. It, it's, it's mainly doing this, the audio stuff on, you know, through podcasts. So we'll do a screenplay just because it's easy for, you know, my producers to break it down and know how many props they're going to need for the scene uh, and what the characters' names are. But, um, but really, no, it's, it's a lot of just recording it as a podcast and then putting in music and sound design and, um, and, and making it into an audio version of the movie. And that's, that's a better exemplar of what the movie's going to be anyway. Yeah. I remember, I remember hearing you say that I listened to, uh, your interview your uh your interview on films to be buried with which was super enjoyable that was like such a fun that was such a fun listen uh but i remember i remember hearing you say that that like yeah you'll record a uh like basically you'll you'll record the whole script as basically like a podcast and will you actually do different voices and things like that for the different characters or not so much yeah. So for the Thunder Road feature, I play my daughter. I play a nine-year-old girl. And like, what, you know, I always say I grew up listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks, and Jim Dale um, does Hagrid and Hermione in the same scene. And the brain fills in the blanks. It's never like, oh, Jim Dale's being a weird pervert. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, no, this is just <laughs> the, these are two different characters. And he does a bit of a he puts on a little bit of a voice. Obviously, he's a very talented actor. Um, and yeah. I'm not. But uh, but most nobody's complained yet. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah, I just, I mean, that's such a cool way. And it's also probably super helpful for the actors that you have in the, in the film to kind of hear it, how you're expecting or not maybe how strict are you actually with that stuff? Like you hear like, you know, the Coens, for example, are like, you know, it's very storyboard, very like, oh, what's on the script is what's being said. Like, are you, do you allow a little wiggle room or like, what, no, what are your, what are your very, thoughts on very that? little, very little. Um, we have almost no improv in the movies just because of the budget and the schedule. Like we, you know, we shot the beta test in 17 days. We shot wow. Thunder Road in 14 and a half. Um, so we never have any time. 
and uh, my producers build the schedule based off how fast I can do it. Um, and so I'll do the podcast version as a way of mitigating the little amount of time we have for, diver- for rehearsal. So like I'll do it a bunch and I, I am a bit forensic in comedy and drama. I think that there is a good way that, or a best way to deliver a punchline and a worse way to deliver a punchline. And um, if it's not working, it doesn't matter who's saying it, we should cut it. Like it, it has to be perfect. Um, and so I'll do it. Comedy and language and English are so complex that, like, if you can just do it out loud, if people at least get the gist of the scene and the tone and the cadence, um, that then they get to elevate it when they show up on set. Damn. Okay. Um, and then, you know, you just mentioned uh, what you were incorrect when you called yourself a bad actor, not to blow smoke, but you're very fun to watch and you're, you, you do a good, you do a good job. But um, what I wanted to ask was, um, did you have the inkling to want to act early on or was that just like necessity of like, well, if I'm writing this and directing this, I guess I should just be in it too. Uh, um, I knew, I knew that I would be good. I knew that I'd be decent if I tried it and I acted in my buddy, Tony Ascenda's film. Uh, it's a, it's a, sh- a fake documentary that we made called this is Jay Calvin, where I was, it was a bit of a boot camp for acting where I had to act in character 24 hours a day, but like Borat um, with real people. And that was a lot of fun and subversive. And I knew that if I really put my mind to it, I could memorize a bunch of lines and, and do it. Um, and then uh, I was working at college humor at the time. And I was seeing a lot of like, comedy actors that weren't as good as Alan Partridge. They were not doing the same thing that Steve Coogan was doing or Ricky Gervais or anybody. It seems like they got into it to try and come across as cool um, rather than humiliate themselves, (laughs) which I found to be so much more endearing when I saw, you know, Ricky or Steve doing it. Um, And so I, I thought, Oh, I could probably do it, but I would never want to like wait around to get cast in something. I should write something that I could really uh, nosedive and that became the Thunder Road short film of like, all right, if I do this thing in a, in a single take that is both humiliating and funny and heartbreaking and, you know, a dance routine, <laughs> uh, maybe people will be impressed by that. And maybe I'll impress myself. And I did. And um, I'm so glad that I did. I could have not done it, but I did it. Um, and yeah. so I knew that I knew that if I took a chance, I could do it. But um, I didn't want to do what all of my friends were doing who were professional actors, which was to go to 100 auditions a year only to get kicked in the nuts and land one of them. And it's like, all right, I don't, you know, my, my ego doesn't need that kind of um, inadequacy trap. So I'll just I'll just work on my little short film on my own. Right. That was well, that was and that was going to be my question. I was going to say, did you ever go through the process of going to auditions and things like that? Or was that never not or was that never just like? Nobody asked me. I mean, I wasn't, I was never taken seriously. I, never, I, was, I mean, I was a producer for six years. Nobody was going to ask me to act in something until Tony did. Um, and then really only recently, like um, I'm very lucky that people have started seeing my stuff, you know, like David Green seeing Thunder Road again and casting me in Halloween Kills, taking a chance on me. That was incredibly kind of him. And then Christopher Nolan saw uh, The Wolf of Snow Hollow on British Airways, I want to say, and then reached out for me to audition for Oppenheimer. And I ended up not getting the part, but that was really nice to meet him and Emma. Um, that was like the first real big audition that I had where I was really nervous about it. I really wanted to do a good job. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and then Ellen Lewis, who is a casting director for Martin Scorsese, uh, brought me in for three different parts 
but I was too funny <laughs> for um, <laughs> for the the new Scorsese film. Um, and and really, at, at this point, I, I just want to impress people. I want to devour you know everything that I can about acting and um, and do a good job. Uh, but but really, I'm I never feel bad when I don't get cast in something, even if it, it sucks that you know I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to hang out and learn something from those people. Um, but uh, but no, I'm I'm too busy doing smaller stuff to not really um, not to worry too much. I guess that's a great attitude to have. And I mean, if you could just be psyched on the the opportunity to say that you got to do those things, I mean, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I got to meet Ellen Lewis a couple of times, and she's just become like this pen pal. And she's very nice. And then the same thing of like, I got to shake hands with Christopher Nolan, one of my heroes, and um, he he took me seriously, which is a joke. Like that would never happen in my wildest <laughs> dreams, you know? Sure, sure. Uh, so then, what was the first time directing? Um, I had done some short films in college, and uh, I had done a music video at USC, and um, I, I, I don't know. It was all like small kind of Duplass wannabe kind of stuff. And I'd done some like classwork. Um, I had made a fake documentary in college that kind of, that when an early Facebook video got a little bit of viewership on E-bombs world, it got a little bit of viewership again, a bit subversive. Um, and that was nice enough for me to kind of ride that wave to go, Oh, if you make something on the internet, people will think it's cool. And then Vimeo is coming out. Um, and Vimeo was 720p before YouTube was. And so that was a bit more of like a, an, you know, artisanal space for people to be making cool stuff. And then they started their staff pick program and my friends, the Daniels, um, who were in the same graduating class as me for, uh, had made a music video, uh, that got staff picked that was really dope. And obviously like some of their, all their early stuff is like so much fun and like to see them grow and now work with Michelle Yeoh and fucking, you know, or yeah. everybody is amazing. Um, but I remember seeing that and that became this kind of lightning rod for everybody in our class and at Emerson to go, oh, okay, cool. They're the competition. And it's kind of, it's like sibling rivalry of like, oh, we have to like make something just as cool and do something different. And so that was really helpful to have that kind of camaraderie. Um, uh, and, uh, and kind of friendly competition a bit. And, um, and so I made, I made some animations with my buddy, Danny Madden, who's also in my graduating class. And those went to uh, South by Southwest and got staff picked on Vimeo. And that was like 2012, 2011 to 2013. We were doing this kind of like festival circuit for shorts and animations and shorter features. Um, but and I was just a producer on those. I was coming in to like not even really help out with the creative. It was more just like scheduling and budgeting and running Kickstarter campaigns and stuff like that. So like really, my early days was spent just doing spreadsheets. Got it. Got it. Uh, that's awesome. You you uh, you were in the graduating class at the Daniels. The world is so small. Like the, the what was the music video one of the Manchester Orchestra music videos. No, even before that, they made okay. um, a music video by a band called FM Belfast called Underwear, I want to say. And it's um, a couple of actors. And the the gimmick was they were able to, uh, and Dan Kwan is in it, but it's like their underwear flying off and this like cool visual effect. And it, it was a really neat, simple um, single location music video, basically. But it was very creative and the song was dope and it took off. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, my first introduction to them was through through Manchester, and like right. the like, and now like those dudes 
our our like close friends and i remember uh hanging with them with the manchester guys while they were doing swiss army man and just hearing all about it, it was super crazy but i'm curious what your what was the music video you did um i made a music video uh for a song i'm spacing on the name of it now let me think um it's called uh, Calculus, and I'm spacing on the name. I remember seeing or hearing the song in an HBO spot. They always had really cool songs in their like trailers. Um, yeah. And then I was at USC, and I made a music video for it. And it was a bit Michelle Gondry copycat stuff, where we like turned a room on its side, and then throughout half of the music video, it's like me rapping to the camera, and then I like stand up on the wall, and it was just kind of like a shock. Um, it was just like simple camera tricks and stuff that I wanted to mess around with. And um, it was fun. It was like the, the thesis was I was going to make the music video, although I had the full semester do it to do it within the last 48 hours of before it was due. And it was actually one of the better music videos in the class because it was like now we have this ticking clock and it was much more of a challenge. And I think I got an A on it. I think I got one of the better grades in the class. Do you feel like because of like experiences like that, and having that fire under your ass, it like <clears throat> it helps you do things the way you're doing them now, where like you're making movies in 17 days, you're making movies in 14 days or, or whatever. Like, did that start, you think, with that? Yeah. I mean, we would always be part of the Campus Movie Fest anytime uh, there was a festival that came to Emerson. And Danny had won, I think, Nationals his freshman year with a film called Elevator Girl. Danny's like one of my best friends in the world he's worked on all of my movies. I've worked on all of his. And, uh, and so that was always something that was like another one of those friendly competitions of making something in a week or whatever the, the time frame was. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, it was always nice to have a good deadline. That was one of the real reasons we got anything done. Um, yeah, I'm terrible without deadlines and I'm kind of having, still having that experience now of like, yeah. well, we have these projects up in the air and like we're pitching some of them, but we don't really have a schedule yet to do it. And so I'm in this like, purgatory of like well shit just like somebody green light us so i can just start working again you know right um was uh what the first uh well actually what was the first short that you did i mean when i was a kid my dad had a little mini dv camera um that he got for my sister's like horse shows so we could like film my sister and then she could like kind of see how she was riding she did like english style hunter jumper riding when we were kids and um and so i would always steal that it had a firewire port so i could plug it into a mac and then use oh iMovie God. and edit it which was pretty slick back in the day and so <laughs> my first few shorts were like i remember i was doing i did like an x-men thing uh and then i did uh I, I mean the matrix we did we tried to do the bullet time thing with like setting up the tripod and like doing the same motion over and over again um oh, wow. that was pretty that was pretty sweet yeah, I guess like all of the kind of nonlinear editing visual effects stuff was my my early stuff. Just trying to impress my friend Seth, who was like yeah. big at the movies but had no idea how to do them. Today's episode is brought to you by Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER, spelled out, when you visit store.dscvrd.co. Discovered is definitely the coolest magazine around. They cover so many bands that uh, other publications just don't. And uh, I love them for it. Support Discovered. You won't regret it. Um, I wanted to ask, like, with shorts, um, is it 
this is like, and I apologize for maybe how like, you know, basic this question is, but that's kind of the fun of this podcast. It's for, it's, it's, I didn't expect yeah. the show to become so like kind of motivational for people. Um, but what I want to ask was like, is it difficult to be constricted by the short time of what a short is? And is there actually like a rule for like, this is considered a short, it can't be longer than this. And then trying to tell that story within that time frame. No, I mean, I think a movie has to be as long as it needs to be. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, so just from my own thinking, after speaking to like film festival programmers all over the world, they Mm -hmm. all have the same kind of feeling that if they program one 15 minute movie, uh, that's a short in a block, that means that they're saying no to three amazing five minute movies from around the world. And so like, that's a difficult thing for them to sacrifice. Um, and so I've always tried to keep my serious films around 12 minutes. And like, I, we do it out loud so much that there are times, like the, the longest short I've made is a film called Parent Teacher that's on Vimeo. Um, and I think it's about 18 minutes, but it, it, had, it felt like it had to be that long. It was like my buddy Dustin was doing this performance. It's all one shot. It's about a teacher at a parent-teacher night having a nervous breakdown, basically. Um, and... Uh, it's it's really funny, but that's the long. It never got programmed in almost any film festival because it was way too long. And then we've done some that are about three minutes, and then that's a bit too short for film festivals. They want something with a yeah. bit more girth to it. Um, so yeah, twelve is kind of the the sweet spot that I've noticed of of how long the movies are that generally play at um, at larger film festivals. Okay, and is it? Have you ever found it difficult to tell a story in twelve minutes, or is or has that ever been like an issue? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think really, you know, I've made 10 single take short films and they're all about that length. Um, I think that's the tolerance for what you can do with the tip of the iceberg. If you're going to tell a whole story, um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like an audience's attention starts to wane or they're less likely to click on a link that has a 14 minute time mark. But if it's just over 10, usually people are okay with it, especially a however long it takes to finish a meal, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I, I haven't really had that trouble to make anything um, or to, to, to like condense it to that space. Um, it's actually quite fun. You know, like if you, if you look into the, the history of narrative short storytelling um, to, I mean, to keep a short story as short as possible and just show the tip of the iceberg while hinting at the rest of the stuff under the water uh, that's the that's the magic. That's the trick. That's the work, I guess. Um, so, no, I find it to be a great challenge. Yeah. Uh, has was or how should I phrase this? Like how often is making is doing a short motivation to turn it into a feature the way you did with Thunder Road? Yeah. I mean, with the Thunder Road short for about a year after I had finished it, I kept telling people that it could never be a feature, that that would be the most interesting moments of that character's life, which would meant that that would have had to be the climax of the movie. And, uh, and if that was the climax, then the previous, you know, 60 minutes would just be like me having a shitty relationship with my mom. I, I, I didn't think that that was a very interesting film. And then about a year after we shot it, I had the idea to do that as the opening and then to just watch it spiral even worse. Um, I was like, how do you top that? And then we did. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean the, the majority of the stuff that I make, I never consider doing it as a feature. I still haven't for many of my movies that are shorts. 
Um, but I can't tell you the value of actually getting a camera and going and shooting something, even if it's a proof of concept, to solidify that, A, it's going to work really well, the, the tone is going to work or whatever, um, or that the casting is perfect or whatever, or that it sucks and you need to, it's undercooked and you need to cook it longer. Yeah, that, I mean, that, yeah, that totally makes sense. Does, uh, I, you know, I, hopefully this isn't too, too personal of a question, but I was curious with Thunder Road, were you going through any sort of grieving uh, yourself? Like, was that based off any experience that you had gone through? It wasn't. I, and there's, I, you know, I don't have any children that I know of, knock on wood. Um, uh, I am a divorcee, uh, but I haven't, both my parents are still alive, thank God. Um, but no, I, I haven't. I just, I, I kind of thought about how brutal it would be to lose my mom. And then that became the origin of it. You know, my, my producer had lost his mom at a relatively young age in college. And, um, that became a huge influence of like sending drafts of the script and kind of it being complicated, especially with the feature too. Um, so many people on the feature had lost people in their lives and it kind of became this, um, lightning rod or something for them to champion that this was an important thing to them. Um, and then I just had to, you know, basically kill myself to make the movie. And it was yeah. me doing it for everybody in the room. And there were times where we were like, you know, you, you act in a scene and then you think like, oh, okay, cool. Let's move on to the next take. And then someone has to come up for a hug because they went through hell watching you do the thing. And it's like, okay, cool. We're doing the right thing here. Um, so short answer, no. Uh, but there was a time almost immediately after shooting the short film, my aunt passed away uh, from lung cancer. And to see how that funeral worked and just the focus of everybody, I remember sitting in the pews and thinking, OK, I think I did. I think I did it right. I think I did the right thing here. Yeah, the, the I mean, so well, well real quick question, because you kind of hinted at it with like people around you who had lost somebody who felt the need to come get a hug and things like that. I was curious if after that movie came out, if you became sort of uh, yep. a lightning rod for people yep. wanting to talk to you about their grief. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically. So after the first screening of the film, um, it was in Park City, Utah. It was at Sundance. It was in Shorts Block 5. And, you know, I could probably tell you the date. It was in 2016 or January 2016. And um, uh, we screened the film and it's a comedy, you know, uh, or it was, you know, kind of supposed to be, but it's also very yeah. graphic and um, brutal to watch. And uh, Keegan-Michael Key and the rest of the jury were in the audience and he was laughing really hard throughout. I, 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 this guy was just laughing in the movie theater the whole time. And so everybody was like, okay, this is a comedy. We can laugh at this. And so I was like, okay, cool. It kind of, it played as a comedy. This is great. Um, people are getting it. And then I left and um, the theater and kind of stayed in the lobby with some friends. And I was talking to some filmmakers and this one guy who was not, you know, a, a Sundance goer. He was wearing this like Carhartt jacket with a beard, um, uh, looked like a tough guy, uh, was leaving the theater. And he just kind of hit me on the shoulder kind of gruffly. And I thought it was a, like a, a team member of mine to be like, oh, somebody wants to talk to you. And it's this guy and, you know, and he goes, um, my mom and then walks back out of the theater and yeah. to have to return to a conversation with filmmakers while crying of like, Oh, this guy who is this like tough guy went through hell 
in real life and then felt it in the cinema for 12 minutes and had to say something to me. And that was the first time that I realized this is going to be, people are going to stop me in the street and they have, it's, it's really, it's really strange. Um, You know, film has that ability. If you do it a certain way, it can, people see a mirror, they see themselves on the screen. And if you can give someone catharsis, they remember it forever. Like, I mean, that movie came out six years ago and I still have people want to hug before I go, you know, for a, a, for the beta test, a movie that has almost no humanity yeah. in it, you know, like um, it's a very strange thing. Yeah. I, I you, And, uh, you know, so uh, not to pour on or whatever, but so I had I lost my mom and I feel like what you captured perfectly in that opening scene um, is was was spot on because um, an analogy I thought of is like having to be like a son and give a eulogy so close after the loss of a parent is similar to being in a very bad car accident and then having to recount the car accident to a police officer right after it happens, you know, where you're just like, I am so frazzled right now. Uh, like I'm going to probably tell you the wrong information. I'm going to tell you I was going the wrong speed limit. I was, you know, like you're, you're not in the right headspace. So it almost, it's a, it's an interesting thing that everybody goes through with the loss of a loved one or, you know, whether it's a parent or a sibling or, or whatever it is to like go through that going up in front of an audience and then yeah. trying to kind of, everyone does their best to maybe kind of be funny, tell a sweet story, but like they're unable to control their emotions at certain points and they do lose it. So, I mean, I remember seeing that I had seen the Wolf of Snow Hollow first. That was my introduction to your films. Oh, and God. I absolutely loved it. And my, one of my best friends said, Oh, you got to watch Thunder Road. So uh, my fiance and I watched it and I was just like, Holy shit. He nailed it. Like nailed oh, it. So that's why I was so curious if what your experiences were. And that makes sense that people around you um, were, you know, giving you that, that pat on the back to be like, you're doing it right. Yeah, it's a shitty thing that we we ask people to do. It's part of the mourning process. But another weird thing is if you're a family member, especially a close family member of someone who's passed, um, you become the person that has to get up and say something. And often it's not even for you. It's for other people to contextualize the pain. And the two biggest fears of Americans when they're polled, you know, almost every year is death and public speaking. And to force somebody to do both, to like confront mortality in front of a crowd with a microphone is such a weird thing that we do. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and another thing is like... uh, that's a thank you for sharing that story. Um, but there, but there's so many people around the world um, it, that have reached out of like Korean funerals are so strange in that they have to like be next to the body and they spend like a full week like kind of going through hell with each other as a family and they're eating together and it's like there's so many different death rituals that are it's only through meeting enough people around the world to realize how bizarre Americans is and how clean cut the kind of funeral services are in America. It's very strange. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, my girl actually wanted to ask you, uh, after pulling off Thunder Road, did you feel like a different person? With the short film, yeah. I mean, with the short film, yeah, and then I had to go back to an office. Like, I had to go back to an office job <laughs> for a minute and, yeah. like, put put on the suit and pretend to be a, a human being and not this performance artist uh, yeah. kind of guy. Um, and... I, when I was, you know, I was going home and editing it every night, but really 
I had been rehearsing it for two months and writing it and rehearsing it for two months. And then we went into this funeral home and shot it in six hours. It was the easiest shoot I'd had all month. I was paying for it entirely out of pocket. Um, and we finished the shoot. My buddy Dustin Hahn uh, was on set. He plays the guy with the cell phone uh, in the corner okay. of the frame <laughs> yeah. and uh, is perfect comic timing. And uh, I took one of the hard drives with me and I gave one to him and he got into his car and I got into mine. And I said, if I die on the drive home, you give this to Trey Schultz and Danny Madden and they'll finish the movie. And oh my God. it was this really insane moment of like, at least we shot it. At least I know it's good. And somebody will be able to get it out into the universe if I die in the next 25 minutes. So like, absolutely. I became, you know, Gandalf the white basically in, in, in that moment. Um, because I knew how important it was. I knew that it was going to be good. Um, and I'd worked really hard on it. I knew that, that if I had put in the time and the sound design and everything, it'd be good. Um, but then with the Thunder Road feature, it was so much more intense. Where like my producer lost her sister. This is this drunk driver, you know, like a week before we started shooting. And we were all kind of grieving with her. Um, and then, you know, we're forced. It was such a strange catharsis where... Um, it is a bit like summer camp. You go through all of these endorphin rushes with people that you're all living in the same, you know, house. Basically, we're shooting in the same location we were we were sleeping in, um, and then you're you're shooting something really tragic that's also very funny. So you're laughing and crying all day with these people. Um, it was such a crazy experience, and um, and self sacrificial in so many ways for all of us. It was. Um, I don't know if you'll reach that kind of high, or most people certainly don't in their lives. And then to win all of the awards for it, it's like, um, you know, I'm just really glad that we were able to kind of get everybody off and running. Now, like, you know, almost every member of the crew that was on that shooter, every actor is now, you know, doing really big stuff. And it's such a fucking fulfilling experience to have done this thing that was a Kickstarter campaign that then, you know, allowed the boats to all rise with that tide. Um, so, yeah, in many ways, I, I became... Uh, a different person after that experience. I love that. Um, and just, for, this is a fun aside where I, uh, I, I read that Nicholas Cage got in touch with you uh, after seeing yeah. the movie and what, and, and, and wanted to just tell you how much he appreciated it. What's do you mind telling that story a little bit? Yeah. So I woke up one morning with a, with a voicemail from Nick and um he, I'll never forget it. It was like, he was like really the first big celebrity to kind of take me seriously. And I needed it bad at that point. Um, it would have been, you know, early 2019 or something like that. Maybe late, maybe later. I don't even remember. Um, but he called me and said, uh, Mr. Cummings, hello, this is Nicholas Cage calling. I just wanted to say, I saw Thunder Road on an airplane and I watched it twice in the last 48 hours. He was amazing. And um, uh, he is such a champion of cinema and independent filmmaking and everybody I speak to on the festival circuit has a story of him personally watching their movie and coming up and, and talking to him. He is such a lovely dude and for whatever reason thinks that I'm one of the best actors of all time and filmmakers of all time. And it's such a compliment and I've, I've had a couple of good run-ins with him. I'm trying to work with him basically any way that I can because he and I have such kismet of like, we love 
um, going to 11 and doing that at, in a way that is a love letter to, to Shira Mifune or Denzel in Training Day um, and to do something that is also heartbreaking like Pig, um, I, I, like, I know that there's a way that we can work together and we just we haven't been able to overlap yet. But yeah, Nick, Nick reached out a couple of times and yeah. um, strange to say that he's a friend now. It's, it's really I feel very lucky. I love that. I would uh, I would buy stock in uh, in whatever film that is. Um, that's so good. That's so good. I just uh, I got to my buddy and I got to go to an early screening of that uh, unbearable weight of a ma- of massive oh, talent really? that's coming out. Wow. Yeah, it is hysterical. It is. Okay, it's so it's just so fun to see him just it, like be so confident in who he is as a person because he's playing himself in it and it's just so yeah. hysterically funny um yeah. uh j- for, real quick for the wolf of snow hall i wanted to ask um because you know that movie came out a year after robert forrester had passed and you know seeing him in that film just like you know every time you see someone that you know has already passed all of a sudden be in a movie you, that's like newer you're like oh what a what a legend this what a legend he was um i just i was just curious like what what your experiences were getting to work with him and and you know uh your thoughts on it after some time has passed he was really great man he was obviously he's fucking robert forster but he was really great he had worked he had done a film um called too late with my producer matt miller which was um, a series of long takes and he nailed it every time. He was just like perfectly on book and nailed it. Um, And when we were looking for somebody to play my dad, uh, Matt Miller said, I think Robert would do it. If we asked him kindly, he'd do it. And we sent him Thunder Road and he loved it and was like, I don't know how you do all three of these. And he's like, I tried to do all three in a movie, a detective movie I made in the eighties or nineties. And he and I talked at length about that, of just like the craft and doing hard work. He was such a, he was such a hard worker. He had such a great work ethic of like knew everybody's lines better than they did. And he was devoted to doing the thing, knew what the scene needed and like was willing to do more takes to get it to be funnier or more dramatic. And when we were in the frame together, there were so many times where it was like, oh, I'm actually like his son. And then he's actually like my dad. And so yeah. we didn't have to act very much because, <laughs> you know, I'm like holding his arm and trying to get him to pull away from somebody from embarrassing me. And it's like, this is just my childhood. You know, this is just exactly what my dad is really like. And so it did come across as very natural between the two of us. Um, there was this one moment when uh, we were doing this emotional scene where he basically retires to kind of force him into retirement and, you know, he's 80-something and still acting. And I, we have a minute of downtime before, you know, we start shooting again. And I'm kind of, like, crouched down next to him. And I, I tell him the story about my dad, who's 84 now. And when the time came to retire from law, he ended up starting this museum and, like, became this, like, director of a museum because he couldn't stop. And I told him this kind of, like, long story. And he goes, yeah, why quit? all right, let's do this thing. And then like we went immediately into the scene and like immediately started acting and doing the scene. And that is the memory that I have most of him of just like constantly willing to push and keep making and keep making, keep making and like to keep, you know, doing something for the tapestry of cinema. It was really endearing. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope to fulfill that, that legacy. I hope to do the same thing. Absolutely. Um, Did you enjoy finding the, uh, like, are you a, were you a big comedy horror guy? Like, is that like a genre that you enjoy? I mean, 
it's difficult because when I was growing up with comedy horror, you know, you think of like Tucker and Dale versus evil or like hot fuzz or Shaun of the dead. And like, I think those films are different from the kind of stuff that I wanted to make. Like basically like seven, I think is such a funny movie. Brad Pitt is stuck an idiot in that movie that like anytime he says something, there's a moment where like, he's clearly not the right guy to handle it. And Morgan Freeman's like, yeah, it's about sloth. It's all about the seven deadly sins. And then uh, the, 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 the chief is like looking at him and he goes, oh yeah, well, you know, he's in charge of it. And he goes, he goes do you think you can handle it? And he goes, oh, I'm all over it. And he's like, right. he's a buffoon. And like the audience clearly like, he's not going to be able to handle this case. Like we need Morgan Freeman. He's got to, he's got to do yeah. this. Um, it's, he's such a funny fusion of comedy and real violent horror um, I love that stuff. And so really my kind of comedy horror was always watching horror movies and feeling like they were missing opportunities for great connective tissue f- to an audience of like, um, you know, anytime you watch something like, a, like a, the mummy, Brendan Fraser is so charismatic and so funny. And he has these little quips throughout, um, you know, like there's a big wind that's spooky when they're reading the book. And he goes, that happens a lot around here. And it's like uh, unnecessary to say, but like the it's a joke for the audience and it kind of greases the wheels of entertainment. Um, I love that kind of stuff. So so not really. I mean, like Army of Darkness and Evil Dead 2 were just like huge fun movies yeah. for me to watch. Those were like Fantastic Fest kind of movies for me to watch. But um, But I knew I wanted to make something that was a bit more dramatic. And then the comedy was just welcome in the horror. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, whenever a good joke lands in a horror movie, whether they're trying to do it or not, it's 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 nice because you have that relief because you're so tense. You're like, oh, we could laugh at something for a second. Yeah, that's it's really, really special. It it Um, is neuroscientific. Like, I think about that a lot in my editing. I think about like when I'm breathing and then like if I'm holding my breath and that's too tense and I have to like change the edit to make that work better. Um, it is about human biology. Like, obviously, you're screening the movie for humans. You should be thinking about that. But, uh, but yeah, that is a real thing of like when, how long do you hold on a shot of a transition to then give the audience a breath before going into another joke or another scare or something like that? It's all, it's all neuroscientific. Yeah, and that makes sense too. I mean, even, it's not even horror. It's obviously not horror, but like it's the same sort of thing with, uh, with Thunder Road with the cell phone gag. Where it's like yeah. you're watching this really intense thing, but then that happens, and then you're like, okay, we can laugh about this for a second. Yep, yep, it's very important. They, they say, um, or I say, if you don't make jokes throughout your movies, your audiences will. Great quote. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I, so I had a, an actor friend um, on the show early on, and he mentioned something which popped in my head with the Wolf, Wolf of Snow Hollow. Um, his name's Kier Gilchrist. He was in the film um, It Follows, right? Yeah, that's so right. Did, yeah. So. Uh, he mentioned in that podcast in that interview like about how um helpful it is for independent filmmakers to make a horror movie maybe whether they're even that interested in the genre or not because it's kind of in a safer way to get attention or maybe to get your money back because you know horror movies are always going to have an audience you know kind of a thing so you got like Ari Aster, who obviously did a series of shorts and then he made Hereditary. You got, uh, you know, Jeremy Saulnier and and David Robert Mitchell, who like, though they had already made movies, then they made like Green Room and It Follows and things like that. And I remember Kira even telling me like, he's like not even a horror guy, but made It Follows. I'm curious if, if that at all was any sort of motivation for The Wolf of Snow Hollow. I mean, I had the tradition of seeing someone like Trey Schultz do Cresha and then It Comes at Night. Um, 
you know, to go from serious drama comedy to then, you know, genre horror. Um, and that was just a tradition that I'd seen in many contemporary American filmmakers. And I thought that that was on purpose. I thought that was them, you know, spreading their wings and doing something to like, uh, you know, please a crowd or something. Um, but it's not really when you make a good indie feature, nobody's going to trust you to do it again. Like if you can do something that's great on your own, you become the competition rather than the subordinate, which is what Hollywood is looking for. And so really to get a film made, it had to be a genre film in our experience, um, still is a bit. So like really I'm lucky that I had those influences and said, this is a, a track that I can follow. Um, and I had written the Wolf of Snow Hollow as a, cause I was only a short filmmaker when I had written the script for it um, as a, as like a mini series, like a web series kind of thing, because I didn't think that anybody would take me seriously enough to make a feature. And then we made the Thunder Road feature and I had people from the same companies that were telling us no reach out after we won South by Southwest to be like, hey, what's going on with that werewolf thing? I'd love to like talk to you about how we can do it in the same wow. email chain being like, oh, yeah, we're not going to do this thing. We're not interested. Then they would respond and be like, hey, what's going on with this? We'd love to be involved. Um, Interesting. It's crazy. So so really, there was just much more interest in a genre thing. And then I sent it out and we went and pitched it once. We pitched it to a couple like Lionsgate and then Orion and I really liked the executives at Orion and they were very nice, young, cool, smart, um, hip people that got the jokes. They understood what the movie was going to be. And, um, so we just went with them immediately and went and started planning the shoot. So that happened very quickly. And then, um, with beta test, I was like, all right, I want to try out this crowd equity thing and see if this is going to work for financing. And it did. Yeah, and so we were able yeah. to kind of build a studio just around the public rather than having to rely on major studios or streamers or anything. Right. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That makes sense. Um, I wanted to say with the beta, I, so I, I really enjoyed the beta test. It was very, oh, very fun. It was, uh, it, it was, it's, it felt so like, I, like I even made a note, like it felt so like fun and daring and, and, uh, it was like, it felt daring and, and honest and like a perfect encapsulation of someone who, um, clearly like wants to be this sort of Jeremy Piven in entourage character at yeah. a time where you're like, you can't behave this way. And then that moment of relief you get when, uh, when PJ McCabe says like, in, in this climate, like, yeah. like it's, it's like you're watching the whole film and you're waiting for someone to say that. And then when he finally says that, you're like, thank you. Like, I'm so glad. So we're, I hate to say it, we're, we're plagiarizing that from Tyler Perry's character in Gone Girl because we saw that okay. in a movie theater. And uh, PJ and I saw it together when the day it came out. It was a packed house in NoHo, uh, the NoHo 7. And, um, and uh, you're watching this really fucked up couple and then Tyler Perry's a lawyer. And then like halfway through his meeting where Ben Affleck's talking about his relationship with his wife, he goes, y'all are the most fucked up couple I've ever heard. And the whole audience bursts into like <laughs> laughter and applause. And it's like, it was just, it's just so welcome to be like, yes, this is what I've been thinking for the last hour or whatever. And, and right. we, we saw that that worked. And so we always talked about his character being a bit of that Tyler Perry, the kind of connection to the audience. That one thousand percent makes sense. It's it was it was uh, that was definitely one of those like very like big relief moments. You're like finally, Good. finally, you're saying what everybody is thinking. Like, what are you doing, <laughs> man? Isn't that fulfilling? It's so great to be able to do that stuff. Yeah. 
Um, and, uh, I just got to say like towards, you know, uh, not really, you know, not, not giving spoilers away. Cause, uh, you know, everybody needs to see that film. Um, but I just, I love, I loved during towards the end, uh, during one of the, the, your, your patented freak out scenes. Well, the whole, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I fucking hate the internet. Like, uh, I just wanted to be the early two thousands. Cause that's the thing. Like, though we don't where no one wants to condone what has happened in this film. But like, that was one of those things that I feel like most people can be like, right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It, it's really funny. My, my fiance says that she's like, everybody feels that way for whatever reason. Like everybody at a certain age feels that way. Um, but uh, especially about the internet, but really when we were writing that in, it's all, it's over the top. It's so over the top. Like um, there, there are two moments in freakouts where I, I purposely put them in knowing that they would be gifable almost of like me in the parking lot in Thunder Road where I'm shouting and I go um, uh, there, I talked about it. Like talking about your problems never helped anybody ever. And like, I just knew that that was going to be this kind of like catchphrase comedy thing. And I thought honestly, that we would be reamed for it. I thought that people were going to be like, oh, this is so over the top and so ridiculous. But really, everybody remembers those lines more than everything else. It's like a strange kind of Will Ferrell effect of like, if you can make something that is like poignant and internet based in its jokes, people will appreciate it. 1000%, 1000%. And uh, I just wanted to to, to ask, because I find it so interesting. Um, you had mentioned that after that movie had come out that... Uh, because it sort of had this radioactive thing that you ended up losing your agents because of it. Was that some, I mean, I had to imagine that was probably both disappointing, but also like, yeah, okay. I, like, I, like I get it. And has that been tough for you going forward? I mean, it, I mean, the movie is very radioactive. The movie is about a very serious problem in Hollywood it's about the WGA packaging fight, which was in all of the newspapers and on everybody's mind for the last like several years and still is a bit. Um, but we were making a comedy about it, this kind of subversive comedy. And so all of the agents, um, obviously all of their clients have reached out to say, hey, I love it. Like if you ever want to make a movie yeah. with me, I'm a famous person. Like don't talk to my agent about it. Talk to me. Um, right. And then like a lot of people in television who are executives and kind of kingmakers have reached out to be like, that was a really funny joke that you made. Um, and thank you for making this movie. And so it has helped us for the people that care uh, about the industry and who are nice humans. Um, but then when we got dropped by the agency, uh, it, it was a bit of confirmation of like, okay, we made a joke about it. I'm not, I'm not let down. I mean, I, you know, we offended them. It's a terrible thing. You offend somebody, of course they can respond however the fuck they want. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, Oh no, maybe we did the wrong thing. But really, I mean, we had, we had been so subversive as journalists for the previous year and a half. Like we had emails from all these people from the assistants who would just like drop box us a mailbox of like, you know, someone that worked at the agency world so that we could see how the sausage was made and how people actually thought of their clients and all of this stuff that like contributed to what the script is of just how cruel they are to their assistants. How, you know, the, many of the emails go to like two in the morning. Sometimes these people are forced to stay up incredibly late. They have to like FaceTime with people while they're in the shower. It's all of this weird sexual power dynamics. It's really gross. Um, but we'd spent you know, a year and a half in agency world doing research. Um, and so it wasn't surprising to me that they said no. Um, and really 
when I reached out in this year to say, hey, I'm looking for acting representation, I reached out to all of the nice casting directors and I said, who do you actually like? Who's a human being who's very nice uh, and honest? And everybody said, Houston Costa, reach out to this person. He's a very nice guy. And yeah. I, I talked to him once before. He reps Alicia Vikander and um, Elliot Page and a million other very talented performers, all, all my favorites. And um, and so he came over for coffee and we hung out and I was like, yeah, this makes this makes sense. This is kind of what I was hoping for. So So really... So much of you know punching up and making fun of the powers that be ended us ended up helping us in the powers that be and um, I, yeah I think everybody should do it it's okay to talk shit it's okay to speak honestly about the the circumstances and the power dynamics because if you do you get rewarded for it yeah I mean uh, my girl worked at an ad agency for a very long time and then now she's now she does uh, like set decoration set des- like that um, that type cool. of stuff and and when she was. Yeah, I mean, she she enjoyed the movie. You know, we both enjoyed it a lot. But there, but she definitely was like, "Holy shit!" Like, nailed nailed so much of this. Nailed so uh, so much of this. She'll appreciate this. So uh, I do want to hear her thoughts about the production design not being part of the live Oscars anymore, um, which was announced a couple of days ago. Which sucks. Yeah, um, is insane. Uh, but for the agency world, my production designer, my longtime friend and production designer, Charlie Texter was designing the agency stuff. So we would take like screen grabs when somebody would tag themselves at CAA um, on Instagram and we would like design the rooms to make it look like an agency. But then Charlie was peppering in all of these like black leather couches and like cow horns and like all kinds of stuff. And I was like, why are you putting this stuff in the frame? And he goes, because they're Satanists. We all know they're Satanists. Like these people, are, you know, they're all going up north to Bohemian Grove. We know, we know, we know what they're up to. And it was so funny. Like he kept on putting in these tiny things to, to kind of prove that, uh, you know, the filmmakers thought that the agency world were a bunch of Satanists. It was really funny. That's incredible. I love that. Um, well, damn, I can hit you with the last question, which is uh, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? <laughs> I'll tell you when it happens. No, I don't know. I don't know, dude. I mean, I have I have this wavering, you know, existential crisis constantly of like, well, even if you had, a, you know, I'm very happy. I'm a very... Um, nice person i'm able to like help the next generation anytime they reach out and they're going through hell of you know connecting them with, with the right people or helping somebody run a, a campaign to raise the funds for their film um i feel like i get to pretend to be robert redford you know for a minute and that's been really fulfilling for me and that's only come about in the last three or four years but um it's been really nice to be able to reach out to power players in the film industry and just talk to them on the phone like a normal person and say, I really want to do this thing. And then they say, well, let's talk about it. Let's do it. Let's like figure out a way to do it. Instead of having to go through the rigmarole of all of this stuff. So I feel very lucky in that the the stupid, goofy horror movies and comedies that we've been making <laughs> have given us any kind of street cred in this town um, where anybody can take us seriously. But it has. So I think over the last couple of years... Um, you know, I, I think that's, I think that I, I probably, probably finishing the feature of, of Thunder Road and being very proud of it and working on that set was really, really great. And that was probably the first time that I felt like we were all working to tell the same story collaboratively. And then to win all the awards for that, it was like confirmation. It doesn't mean anything, but it was, it was a nice recognition for everybody on the team that um, if we just keep on trucking, 
you know, there's no difference between us and the people that make James Bond. You know, it's it's still just different YouTube channels and we make a different kind of little movie and and they make a different kind of big movie. So um, I think that was probably it, making the Thunder Road feature. Long answer, short question. I love it. I love it. No, it's a great answer. And, you know, I was so excited to talk to you just not only because I enjoy your work, but because I think you have such a cool story that you you kind of prove that you can go out and actually do this stuff where I think uh, like I'm born and raised in Burbank, California. So like I am, you know, my entire life was like built around, you know, like parents, siblings, like working in the industry and like it feeling like such a big machine and almost unreachable in a lot of ways because you see, you know, you're living in the sausage of how it's being made. And, and so to, to have someone like you come out and just genuinely like make things happen on your own terms um, it's been just really exciting to see happen. So I'm, I'm so happy for you that you've continued to do this and, uh, and really making your mark. Yeah. That's my fucking job is to send the ladder back down. And also just to, but my producer, Ben, one of my best friends talks about that of like building a highway for filmmakers. So that like, if we end up doing something that we are like struggling to do, but then we find a way to do it, to make the industry much more equitable for people who are you know, trying to tell cool, different stories. And it's really fulfilling. Like, I, I hope that um, I'm able to continue to pave a path for that people can fucking follow. Because like, when we got into the industry, it did feel incredibly unattainable. It felt like unless you were able to convince Steven Spielberg to do something, that was the only way people knew how to make movies. And the technology is changing all of that. So um, thank you. That means a lot. You got it. You got it. Thanks so much, Jim. This is great. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Jim Cummings for coming on. And thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now on the Patreon when you visit patreon.com slash the first ever patreon you can subscribe for as little as three dollars a month it helps support the show you get all this bonus content you can learn more about the other tiers there's a lot of fun stuff we have going on over there also if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple spotify wherever you're listening to it please do that leaving a rating and review of course always helps you've heard all this and all the other podcasts but um they all say it because it's true all right thank you so much Take care of yourself. Hope to see you on tour. And if not, I will see you next week with a brand new episode. Take care. Bye-bye.